Hey guys, LD here with TJ. Hey. We just wanted to put a quick parental warning on the front of this episode because it does have some coarse language, some suggestions of violence, and kind of graphic imagery. So maybe not the best episode to listen with little ears in the car. But please make sure to check us out either when the car is clear or next week with TJ on her episode of Johnny Cash. On second thought, maybe not. Yeah, I don't think that'll be much better. (laughs) It is rock and roll after all. We'll see you in four weeks. (laughs) You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. How, TJ, I feel like I just saw you. Uh, it's been a couple hours at least. Yeah. A couple like, hours. Like three hours. You're back in the office. I'm back in the office. I'm so excited. So yeah, Yay. the new season of Idol has started. So if you guys... Um, well... Idol casting. Well, idol casting has started. So if you guys actually would like to audition for the show and you want more information, shoot me an email at my idol email, which is the next idol 2018 at gmail.com, and I'll send you some info on the audition process. So that's my shameless plug for the day. But yeah, today was my (laughs) first day back and I was so excited. So yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. But then we work on. We work on the same floor, but we work in two different parts of the office. And I don't know about you, but when I walk over to your side, it's like I'm a little scared like I shouldn't be there. See, I always feel like that on your side, too, though, because, like, I kind of stick out. I feel like anytime I do go over to get you or to see you, it's super quiet over there. And then everybody's, like, staring at me like, who are you? Why are you over here? Well, you're a ginger. And so, well, of course, you stick out. I mean, I'm I just barely I, a ginger. I became a ginger last night. So, yeah, I'm, I'm barely a ginger. You're barely a ginger. We're not like <laughs> bright, flaming redheads. I'm a box ginger. So, well, so am I, I'm, I needed I'm a, a bottle change. ginger. I needed a change, but I didn't have the two hours that it would take to get my hair cut. So, this is this is what happens. <laughs> I'm a bottle ginger. It's all right. Yeah. So, that was our weekly wrap up. So, yeah. On to. Bobby Fuller, part two. Woohoo! So when we last left Bobby, they decided that after they had been um, kind of chased out of the teen rendezvous, the nightclub that they were running, their equipment had been stolen, and there had been like a massive switch up of like the band members that they needed to change, and so they kind of loaded up their van and pointed it west. Yes, West. West, yes. yes. <laughs> like, where is Hollyweird is about as west as you can go. Actually, that's not true. Oh, come on. <laughs> Semantics. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so they had decided to go to California, and so that's where we're going to pick up our story today. To be fair, I said about as far um, west as you can go. Jumping right in. <laughs> In retrospect, there were a few additional reasons why the Fanatics headed out of town. In August, at the El Paso Federation of Musicians, they had filed a charge against Bobby for violation for failing to file contracts and failure to pay the required work dues and playing with non-union members without clearance. 
And that's like a big deal. That's a very big deal. And here's the thing. I'm going to put it into a, a way that I know that I understood this. And it might kind of go over the heads of the listeners. But if you're in the Screen Actors Guild, you're a union actor. And so you can't do non-union movies. And it's, that's most. That's most unions. Yeah. If you're in a union, you can't do non-union work. Yeah. And, and there are things that that they can do against you as a performer because they can fine you. They can fine the production they can find just about anyone involved in the production, like the producers, directors, things like that, for allowing a union player in a non-union film. By spring of 1964, Bobby's sweetheart Pamela was living with her family in Pecos, Texas, some 200 miles east of El Paso. They relocated because uh, Pamela's father's work, the same way Bobby had to move constantly. And it seems like that's like a big thing in Texas is like you just go where the work is. Well, yeah. Uh, Bobby and Pamela met in 1962, and they were engaged to be married a year later. It should be said at this point, when they met... So is this he, number two that he was engaged to? Roughly. Okay. <laughs> it, he was 18, and she was 14. Oh. Yeah. Not that big an age gap when you get older, but when you're that young... That's well, when you're dealing with... Like a big gap. When you're dealing with legal and illegal... Well, that's yes. that's the hard part to swallow. Yeah. They can date all they want. They just can't consummate the relationship, though. Yeah. But the couple seemed okay. And both sets of parents, like the coupling was fine with both the sets of parents. And her mom made them some matching shirts for them to wear. So, Aw, so cute. They seemed okay with it. At the time, Pamela's father was still traveling back to El Paso on business and they had some relatives there, and her father came home one night and said that he had heard rumors that Bobby was dating other girls. The relationship went downhill after that, and they broke up in 1965. Pamela sent back Bobby's ring and went off to college. So she would have been technically the f- first one. Oh, she was the first one? Okay. She would be the first one, and Lin- Linda, I think, was the second Just one. Just when you said all that, though, like... The Price is Right loser music played in my head. (laughs) So sad. Jumping back to 1964, uh, one summer evening, the Fullers were visited by the livid father of a 15-year-old pregnant girl named Mary. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. He claimed that Bobby had forced himself on his daughter at the rendezvous. With the statutory rape charge only a phone call away, the Fullers agreed to a non-negotiable arrangement with Mary's father. The girl was sent alone to New Mexico for the duration of her pregnancy and returned alone to El Paso in early 1965. Here's an interesting story. Mary's son was adopted at birth in New Mexico and would not learn of his natural parents until his birth mother tracked him down and went public with the story decades later. John... The son did not have a chance to meet his grandmother, Lorraine Fuller, before her passing. He plays guitar today and lives in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, I remember reading in the book, which I didn't include it in this because at some point I'm just like, I can't write everything down. So I guess I'll summarize it here. It was weird because he would say he could do things like pick up a guitar and like pick out a tune really easy. And... He never understood why, because his parents couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, could not play any instruments. So it was just 
weird to him that he had that ability to. And so when Mary Fuller, or yeah, when Mary showed back up and was like, I'm your birth mom and your dad's Bobby Fuller, he was like, oh, that's why. So it's the nature versus nurture thing. Right. So I just thought that was really interesting, but I, <laughs> I surmised it a lot faster than I could have written it down. So truth. At the time of Mary's pregnancy in 1964, Bobby again found himself informed that he was about to be a father. Things were getting complicated for the 21-year-old Bobby, who was still engaged to Pamela. The second girl, Susie, who went to Irvine High School, in her words, We didn't go out to dinners and romantic bullshit. We were homebodies. We were at his house, my apartment, or my best friend Sandy's. We had a wreck one night in a Corvette. He was street racing with another guy, and we thought, My God, our names are going to be in the paper tomorrow. That was big news. But the press burned down that night, so the paper didn't come out. <laughs> In her words, we had a lot of sex in the Corvette and at Bobby's house, but I didn't call him Bobby. I always called him Robert or Ratfink. All the time from when I was five months pregnant until she was born, I called my baby Mouse because she was Ratfink's baby. So she would like nickname it. It was like, I think that's a cute nickname. That's cute, yeah. Like, it's a little mouse. No, like it's because your boyfriend's a Ratfink. (laughs) Susie actually attempted to tell Bobby about the pregnancy at the bowling alley because they were playing at the bowling alley, remember? Right, yeah. But Bobby insisted that they go to the motel. And once they got there, Susie was such a wreck that she just blurted it out. Bobby freaked out so badly that he jumped in his truck and left. Susie thought Bobby was going to hurt himself, so she called the police and they agreed to meet the next day and talk about their options. Bobby knew a place in Juarez where she could get an abortion, but he never mentioned how he knew about the place. Curiouser and curiouser. Yeah, well... Naughty little Bobby. Now, I don't... You know, and it, 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 I should have educated myself on this beforehand, but, like, the 60s were still a time where abortion was looked down on. I mean, it, it's, it's still looked down on today, but it's legal today. She made up her mind that she was going to be married when the baby was born, and Susie asked a man named Bruce, who was in the Air Force... And had showed up in the bowling alley that night. So she just like was like, hey, Bruce, do you want to get married? And he was like, sure. So they got married. She was married August 1st, 1964. Wait, so she tells Bobby about the baby. Bobby freaks out. Which, way to be, man. Then does she get the abortion or no? No. And then she meets this other guy while she's pregnant? Yep. And they get married. All right. Just trying to keep track. It's cool. (laughs) There's a lot to keep track of in this story. Well, yeah. So she got married August 1st, 1964, and Susie never saw Bobby again. She named the little girl Allison. Bruce was abusive and overbearing, and he would root through her stuff, like go through her things. And she actually, he actually found her collection of keepsake, like Bobby's Letterman sweater, photos, and memorabilia. In her words, he threw out all my pictures, but I have my daughter, so I have the best of Bobby. Well, that's nice. So this is jumping ahead just a little bit. For months, Susie had actually blamed herself for Bobby's death. She sent him a long 10-page heartbreaking I still love you letter after that. She said, I wish we could have spent more time together. I thought it was my fault after he got my letter because... The first reports said he killed himself. I thought that my letter 
and what I had said at the end, like a wedding ceremony where it says, where no man shall be put asunder. That was my last line in the letter. I thought he committed suicide because of the letter. I thought that for months. Aww. Back in Los Angeles, the band got a chance to play for Casey Kasem out in Ventura. He was really the first DJ out there to pay any attention to us, Randy said. He remained our friend and our supporter. The first gig we got out in California got put together by Casey, and they had this big dance in Thousand Oaks, and we got to play there once a week, every week. That is a drive. I'm complaining about a drive I don't even have to make. Exactly. (laughs) Casey loved the band, and I quote, They were great, always upbeat, rehearsed, fantastic. Bobby had that magnetic charm, and he turned it on all the time. Randy was a powerhouse bass player, and that rhythm section was unbeatable. The Bobby Fuller Four were always one of my top groups from the early days when they arrived in Hollywood to the day that Bobby was killed and even after that. Their sound really stood the test of time, period. And I want to make a note. I even put it in, like, big, bold-faced letters. I want you to note that Casey actually said the day that Bobby was killed, okay? Okay. So we know where Casey Kasem stands on this. You'll find out why it's so weird. Like, we're getting there, but a lot of questions. Bobby had gone back to Bob Keen at Delphi Records to try and see if he was interested in the new band. And Keen's studio was in disrepair, and there were changes in the air. Still, Keen was impressed by their homegrown records and that their live shows were promising. Bob Keen explains, They'd come to see me, and I could see that there were possibilities. They needed local clubs to pay, and the Ambassador Hotel was in a section of Los Angeles that had a lot of new office buildings similar to the middle of New York City. And I noticed at 5 o'clock every day, there were hundreds of guys and gals getting out of work in the middle of the street. And I figured a dance band kind of thing at a hotel would go over pretty good. That was the first job I got myself for the guys about a month after they came in in December of 1964. The Ambassador Hotel was home to the famous Coconut Grove nightclub for the 21 and over crowd on the main floor. And downstairs was a more casual rock and roll club for 18 plus called the Cave La Cave Pigali. Will knew how to say this. I couldn't pronounce it. It's in French. It's the pig. The the cave pig. Nice. The pig cave. The pig cave. The fanatics took it by storm. And albeit under the alias of Bobby Fuller and the caveman, an onlooker recalls one of Bobby's performances as, I remember sometimes Dwayne would leave the drums and come out and start dancing with us in the audience. And Bobby would take over the drums and go wild. She also remembers Phil Spector sitting at the piano with them. They were so good, everybody just loved them. And it should be said at this point that this was 1964 at the Ambassador Hotel, and four years later, uh, Bobby Kennedy would be assassinated by, allegedly assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan. I say allegedly with the thing because... There's a whole conspiracy theory there, but this is not a conspiracy podcast. Nope. It is not. But it's going to get conspiracy up in here in a little bit. I mean, he most definitely was assassinated, but the whom is alleged. Yes. And the how. Like how many guns were there? Okay. <laughs> Lindley, get back on track. Get back know, on track. I know I, lo- I just love a good conspiracy theory, though. <laughs> I do. So Bobby ended up firing Jim Reese when they were playing at the Cave Pig. I'm just going to call it the cave pig because I can't say the French word. At the cave. At the cave. And Jim went home to Texas and 
The thing was, they kind of fell apart without Jim. So Bobby ended up calling him and asking him back, and Jim was like, okay, and then came back. (laughs) Bobby went back to El Paso and picked up his studio equipment to help Bob Keen repair his studio. They recorded the songs, Those Memories of You. When they got the 45 in huge letters, it said, Bobby Fuller, and underneath it in small letters, and the Fanatics. So I'm going to read that like I would assume it says, Bobby Fuller and the Fanatics. <laughs> Randy went berserk. He picked up one of the records and threw it at Bob. And he was so tired of the Bobby Fuller and dot, dot, dot moniker. It was rumored that the fan club came up with the name Bobby Fuller for, but that is totally false. They were all with Bob Keen when he said, well, what do you want to be? And then they all said, well, there are four of us. Aren't there? And that's how the Bobby Fuller Four came to be. There you go. Which is strange because they're like, we're tired of this Bobby Fuller and. And then they just end up being Bobby Fuller Four. (laughs) Yeah, but it feels a little bit more like a band name instead of he's the main attraction and And then the band is also there. Yeah. I can get that. It's just, you know. Like, I would have tried to figure out, like, a fun little word with, like, you know, Dwayne and Jim and Randy and Bobby and mixed them up and like shipped them. Right. But shipping wasn't a thing in the 60s, so. <laughs> okay. Those Memories of You was a tempid teener. So it a wasn't. What? It was popular with the teens. I mean, it wasn't like a huge hit. Like they liked it. Oh, okay. The backside was the overdriven, superphonic, fantabulous, our favorite Martian. <laughs> I just love the names of some of these songs. All right. Keen did convince them to travel under the name The Shindigs in order to be the house band of an upcoming teen music show, Shindig. So if they went by the name The Shindigs, then the show would be named after the band. See? I mean, it's not a terrible idea. No. But also... Kind of it is. Two weeks before Christmas, Sam Cooke, who is going to be literally my next episode, was killed at a seedy motel after sh- uh, after stopping in at his favorite watering hole, PJ's, on Santa Monica Boulevard. Like Richie Valens, Sam Cooke had a record business connection with Bob Kane, which is weird because I know it's not his fault, but a lot of people seem to die around Bob. Oh. At Delphi Records, which was now traveling alongside or possibly under the egress of a new company called Stereofy Corporation. Of course. Sorry, I got to go back. You say it's not Bob's fault. Maybe it is. There's a lot of mystery around Bobby Fuller's death. And Sam Cooke's death. And Sam Cooke's death. Maybe. Maybe he's not so innocent. Don't sue us. (laughs) It's conjecture. Complete conjecture. Just being silly. In a print interview, Bobby described his spirits at the end of 1964. I didn't have a dime. I was living in a crummy little apartment, and I was miserable because I was sitting there alone and everyone else was out Christmas shopping. For the first time, Bobby was not in control of his recordings, pressings, sales, bookings, production, or publicity. And that's hard for Bobby because he had been doing everything himself from such a young age, and the success that he had thus far was because of what he and the band did together. Right. Like, he created the Teenage Rendezvous. He was the one that 
you know, built the sounds. And, like, I'm not saying it was just him because I know he had help from his parents, from his family, from his brother. From the band. From the band. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm not saying that it was, but it's the first time that he wasn't in control of it. That's always hard, too, because you lose a little bit of that creative control when it goes to somebody else, too. And then, like, you're just so used to doing it all that it's, like, hard to kind of let go of that. Yeah. In a fortunate turn of events, KRLA disc jockey Casey Kasem took a liking to the band and booked them for many of the dances that he sponsored. While Keen made a deal with stations to release the album by the group titled... KRLA King of Wheels trying to get them into the Southern California drag race scene while providing a guaranteed promotional exposure. So basically this was kind of like early tie-in. Right. And this is pre-Gary Glitter but when you hear Rock and Roll Part 2 immediately, what did you say to me? The hockey song. Yeah. It's called Rock and Roll Part 2. It doesn't say it's the hockey song. <laughs> like, yeah. so it's early promotional it's tie-ins song. where it's like you want to associate this band or this song with a particular sport. And so they were trying to do early tie-ins with the drag race scene. They also began to make regular appearances at PJ's nightclub in West Hollywood where Trini Lopez had made a name for herself a couple years earlier. But I guess that name didn't stick because I don't know who Trini Lopez is. Nope. Sorry. Sorry, Trini Lopez. But PJ's was the nightclub that Sam Cooke was at before he was murdered at the motel. At around the same time, Fuller started dropping acid, and band members recall him acting strangely during a doubleheader stint at Disneyland that year. Oh, gee, you think? (laughs) I mean... And also... Who drops acid at Disneyland? I mean, I'm sure a lot of people do. I could... Could you imagine going on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so after he took the, uh, you know, trip to Disneyland and trip The has, trip in Disneyland. Yeah. <laughs> so looking at pictures of the Fuller and Kicks and the Shakedown booklet the, with his prematurely receding hairline and worried expression, it's hard to believe that he would have found peace with hallucinogens. The hope for a final hit came with Let Her Dance. Released first on Mustang in the summer of 65 and then a short time later by a larger Liberty Records. Through what type of wrangling was done with or without Keene's cooperation is uncertain. So Bob Keene's still involved in them. Like is still involved with them through Stereofy Corporation. But... Litter Dance was released on a smaller label called Mustang and then released by a larger label a little later on called Liberty Records. And it's not certain if Bob Keene had a say in that, like whether or not he said that was okay. Oh, okay. So I'm not sure if they were trying to kind of plant a seed. That could be. Maybe. But that's what I got from the book was that basically it is uncertain whether or not Bob Keene had, had that they have given the okay. Right. It was an exuberant, up-tempo number with an overtly California surf and drag feel, taking the group farther from their Texas roots than ever before. So they have separated themselves from, like, that dusty music that they were playing before, and now they're just going straight into the water. Right. It went to the top 20 in Los Angeles, yet failed to connect beyond a few West Coast cities. 
The big national smash happened a few months later at the beginning of 1966 with the release of, on Mustang, of the Exeter 45 from 64, I Fought the Law. This time, it garnered airplay on station from coast to coast and hit the national top 10 in March. And this is the song, like, everybody knows. Yeah. Which, we, I, of course, I will be playing at the end of the podcast, so. There you go. If you don't know it, just hold on tight to the end. I Fought the Law is a song written by Sonny Curtis of the Crickets, and we talked about this before because Bobby Fuller was a massive fan of Buddy Holly. So it would make sense for him to tap a bandmate of Buddy Holly's to find inspiration for one of his biggest hits. And this is what confused Will when I said that I was going to cover Bobby Fuller. And he was like, who's Bobby Fuller? He's like, oh, he wrote, I, he, he recorded, I fought the law. And he was like, no, he didn't. That was the clash. There's been a few versions. There's been a couple versions. It was, it was, a big one was by The Clash. And so I had like a 10 minute argument and I'm like, look it up on Wikipedia. The Bobby Fuller 4 version of the song ranked number 175 on the Rolling Stone list of the 500 greatest songs of all time in 2004. And that same year, it was named one of the 500 songs that shaped rock by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So it, it's got a lot of notoriety. The song was written... And it was covered by The Clash. And it was covered by The Clash. <laughs> the song was written in 1958 by Sonny Curtis and recorded in 1959 when he joined the Crickets, taking the place of late Buddy Holly on guitar. Joe B. Malden and Jerry Allison continued their positions on the stand-up bass and drums, respectively, while Earl Sinks filled the role for the vocals. So this is about the original song, the, the, the Crickets song. Right. The song was on their 1960s LP in style with the crickets and the following year appeared on the B-side of their single, A Sweet Love. The song never received any airplay. Milwaukee's Paul Steffen and the Royal Lancers covered the song in 1962. And remember, we actually talked about the Royal Lancers earlier. Yes. And it provided them with a local hit, but they had never made it onto national charts. In 1964, Sammy Masters recorded the cover of a song. And that same year, the song was recorded by Bobby Fuller and his band on his own Exeter record label in El Paso, which solidified the band's popularity in the West Texas area and was one of the band's biggest hits. <laughs> Sorry. Every time I get to this part, it just makes me laugh. Because did you ever see the movie That Thing You Do? Yeah. A, I love that movie. I've actually seen it. Oh, my God. Uh, number one, that's one of my favorite 90s movies. Like, I rank that alongside of movies like Empire Records as just an awesome music movie. Right. And I love, like, the first time I heard that thing you do, lost my mind. Anyway, <laughs> if you'll remember in that thing you do, they play when they get popular they do a beach movie. Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. Oh, jeez. I don't remember that. Steve's on. <laughs> Steve's on, and that movie is amazing. Um, but that was like a thing that happened. A band would gain a little bit of notoriety, and they would end up in a surf movie. Right. And that's exactly what happened to Poppy, but the name of the movie was... It was a 
cheesy, ultra-low-budget film called The Ghost in the Invisible Bikini. <laughs> what? <laughs> How does that even work? But it's a ghost in an invisible bikini, which means the ghost is basically naked. That's what I'm thinking. Like, how does that? What? <laughs> how would you know she's in a bikini? I don't understand anything. Oh, my God. Okay. It was filmed much earlier, and it hit, it hit theaters that spring. And the band joined Nancy Sinatra on a tune called Geronimo. But it's wildly believed that they were lip-syncing a studio backup group's vocals. Follow-up single, Love's Made a Fool of You, another Crickets track written by Bob Montgomery and Buddy Holly reached the top 30s in May of 1966. The Bobby Fuller Four had arrived. The next single, Ted Darrell's Magic Touch, a song Bobby fell out of touch with. His, it, like He felt that it was not in touch with his signature sound started getting airplay on L.A. radio stations in July, and Bob Keen at least felt positive about its hit potential. And as it turned out, it was the last new record by the group that would ever get any degree of radio exposure. It was easy to see why Bobby Fuller's version of I Fought the Law made the nationwide charts. It was propelled by echoing, fast-drumming, acoustic guitars, and one incessant cymbal. It's a turbocharged folk song. The echo, courtesy of the vault, leaving the song and giving it a yearning any Coca-Cola drinking, camel smoking, suburban teen would instantly feel. That was a copy and paste. <laughs> I can tell it immediately. <laughs> Those are not my words. <laughs> and there was something else. Fuller double tracked his vocals on the Mustang single on the second track, Lowered in the Mix, where the lyric is generally thought to be, I miss my baby and good fun. Rhyming guitarist Reese, who was at the session, swears that Fuller was singing, I miss my baby and a good F word. Ooh. Which is naughty. Which is probably why they buried it a little lower in the mix. If he, if he did say it. If he said it, yes. After reading Reese's interpretation in Kicks, I dug out my ACD of the Mustang singles, and there it was, as plain as an unzipped fly. It's even clearer when you compare it to the earlier versions on Shakedown. When Fuller's definitely singing fun, that this has escaped radio programmers down to the present only provides the best place to hide something in plain sight. So basically, like, he pulled out all of his records and was like, yeah, no, that's what he's saying. So <laughs> <laughs> I Fought the Law kept the band on the road for the rest of Fuller's life playing stadiums, state fairs, and roller rinks from Phoenix to Las Vegas. That's not very far. <laughs> the band played New York, which Fuller hated. It played L.A. double bills with Dick Dale and the Deltones and made live recordings, something almost unheard of at the time, at PJ's, the popular L.A. nightclub. Right. In Kicks, Melody Patterson, the young blonde actress who played Wrangler Jane on the series F Troop, recalled seeing the Bobby Fuller Four in a Sunset Strip club at the height of his fame, and she was 16. Bobby would kick into some of the wildest, hardest rock and roll that he and the band could produce, she writes. Deep, pounding, throbbing instrumentals you could feel all the way into your vagina. One of the biggest memories I'll keep until I get sloshed off to the old actor's home is of Bobby with his guitar slung across his back, 
a blue light on his face and a microphone in his hand. His clothes, black slacks and a white shirt, stuck to him. Transparent with sweat while he crooned some slow, sweet ballad. I swear he made eye contact with every babe in the joint. And every babe in the joint, including me, swore that Bobby was singing the sweet song just for them. So (laughs) she said, after that evening, I was too pumped to go home. So I went over to Ciro's to see a new group that were supposed to be pretty hot. They were called The Doors, and they put me to sleep. Who? It's a, a it's a band that we might cover. I don't know if he's big uh, enough. We're definitely going to cover that band. I'm going <laughs> to. The Bobby Fuller Four's last Mustang session in 66 yielded the Motown-like A Magic Touch. It was a departure from Fuller's style that depressed him. He complained because he didn't like having the West Texas sound. Future R&B star Barry White was working on Mustang at the time, and Fuller reportedly could not stand what he represented, the manipulation of sound beyond what a single person or live band could play. Fuller wanted the trickery to do only so much to augment him, not take his place. He was further agitated when Magic Touch started getting airplay, and he couldn't duplicate it on stage. So I get where Bobby is coming from, like the manipulation of sound to the point where he can't replicate it on stage must be really frustrating. Yeah. Okay. So we're at the night. Late one night in July of that year, Fuller was at his Hollywood apartment drinking beer with friends and he said he was going to go out and buy acid from a sex worker that he knew. His driver and roadie, Rick Stone, told Lena that he was at the apartment when Fuller left. When Stone awoke the next morning... Fuller wasn't there, and neither was the Oldsmobile Fuller drove, which was, I believe it was actually his mom's car, but maybe I have that in my notes somewhere. Stone returned to the apartment, and, okay, so later that afternoon, Stone returned to the apartment and saw police cars and a crowd around the Olds. Fuller's mom had found her son dead inside, bruised, bloody, and doused in gasoline. He was 23. So Fuller's family was actually in L.A. with him? At least his mom was. Oh, that's rough. And imagine what she's been through already. Right. She's had a previous marriage to Tommy, which was really abusive. Then she loses Donnell. Yeah, her first kid. And then she loses Jack. Right. Who was murdered by... Roy, and now she finds the body of her son. Also, interesting uh, note: all cars, <laughs> well Jack, related, yeah, car, well car related. Yeah, because they there's found, a, there's the, a connection with the cars for each of them because yeah. Donnell was killed in the car crash, and then Jack, his car was a big part of his well, them discovering what happened. Yeah, and he also like and because they were driving the, and the guy saw yeah. the thousand dollars in the hood, the money. The supposed money in his car, and then now Fuller is left in the car. Yeah, and it's been so long since I actually wrote this, but I'll say that one of the biggest contentions for his death being a unsolved mystery is that his mom was there, and she could look out the kitchen window and see the parking space. And so that morning. She went to the parking, she was in the kitchen, like, puttering around, and she looked out, the car wasn't there. And then a short while later, the car appeared, and Bobby was laying across the front seat. The thing is, rigor had already set in. So he was already in, yeah, he was already in the advanced stages of rigor mortis. 
And rigor doesn't last that long, but it can take a while to set in. But it's just so bizarre, too. Like, first of all, you know, you mentioned Susie thinking that it had been self-inflicted, like a suicide. Nothing about that says suicide to me. Well, initially they thought that he drank gasoline. Oh, but how would that account for like the bruising and the blood and everything? That, like, that's ah. obvious. Like, and how would he have driven himself back to home? That's the thing. Like, ah, there's the rub. So well, yeah, none of that makes sense. Yeah, the investigation was actually botched from the start. The crime scene was left unsecured. And no fingerprints had been taken from a gas can that was actually found in the car. And literally, I went back and I watched the Unsolved Mysteries about Bobby Fuller. And the it was a gas can that was sitting in the front seat. And in the reenactment, so I don't know how accurate it is, but within the reenactment, literally, people were just like walking up to the car and like touching it and looking inside of it to see the body. And like friends of Bobby's were just like wandering up and like looking inside the car. And then in the reenactment, the, the lead investigator, like, picks up the gas can and literally throws it into the trash can with, like, his bare hands. Yeah, that's just, this is all botched. Because that's the other thing. Why would you even douse him in gasoline, like, unless you're going to set him on fire? And then why, well, wouldn't, why would you not have done that? Or maybe they're hoping well, that... There's there's a part of the investigation about ooh, this. I wonder if they were thinking that they left him in the, hot, in the car in the sun, he would set himself on well, fire. Many believe that Fuller had been murdered and the perpetrator had fled just as they were about to torch his car to destroy the evidence. So people oh. actually thought that, like, because the car appeared in the middle of the that day. Would, that would make more sense that you're about to torch it. Yeah. That you're dousing him in gasoline, but then you don't. Yeah. Like, but uh, why would you park it at his home? Right. And then torch it there where there could possibly be some of there to stop it or to catch you or that sees you. I'm wondering if the person was also on drugs at the time. Well, we got theories. Yeah. We have theories. So there was that idea that he was going to just get torched. And it, and for some reason, something interrupted them. Right. A partner of Bob Keen repeatedly had mob connections. And the record company was involved in a payola scam, which is something that we're going to do a short set on. And basically, like, to put payola in the easiest way, like, to, to frame it in the easiest way, was payola was basically record labels paying radio stations to play a particular artist's music a certain amount of times a day. Yeah, it's a bribe. Yeah, yeah. Basically, Paola, in a nutshell, was paid to play. But we will do an episode. We'll do a short set on that because it's really, really interesting. And there was a DJ that went down hard for it. Yeah. But to be fair, nearly everybody else in the record business was involved in the Paola scam. There was also a matter of a large life insurance policy allegedly taken out on Bobby Fuller by his re- his uh, same record company investor, which, I mean, that's not, it's not that weird. Like, for, for some reason, having a, a, a life insurance policy on one of your clients or one of your talent doesn't seem that weird to me. That's because not weird. That's not that weird. Even, even our work has life insurance. On us. you, really? Well, for us. Well, I'm I'm saying like, if, but I think they. I but if I took out an insurance policy on you, 
No, that's not uncommon. Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm saying yeah. like I, that's not that much of a red flag for me because especially with like no offense to I don't mean to stereotype, but it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Like right. the people that you are putting your money behind, a lot of times in the past were not very responsible. You know. Well, and you, you know, sometimes if something like that happens and they need to cover their own butts and try to recoup some costs sometimes too. Yeah. Because it was very, it seemed like it was very common in them days that right at the peak of their success and like the, like the real launching of their careers, they die. Yeah. So you do, I mean, like I, I don't find that as much of a red flag as some people see it as I just see it as like, you're, you're literally, protecting an investment because you have put a lot of money into this person and you want to you want to protect your investment right I I can see that so another theory was that Fuller had gone to an LSD party and had an accident had befallen him (laughs) so uh, again in the Unsolved Mysteries that I watched the reenactment was that that he had met a girl named Megan I think or Maggie I can't remember but they had tripped acid at the beach and that he had like either drowned or hit his head on a rock or something and they thought he was dead. So they're like, let's cover it up instead of like calling the cops. So I feel like though, if if it wasn't a murder, they wouldn't have any reason to cover it up. No, but you're also not thinking. LSD is involved. Oh, yeah. So... They were worried that they would be held responsible and busted for drugs along with, you know, they just had a friend die in front of them. Right. The partygoers drove him back to the apartment and left his body in the car. And here's something weird. It's even speculated that Charles Manson could have been involved somehow. So basically they're just throwing out all sorts of guesses. It is just, it is cooked spaghetti. If only they had processed the crime scene appropriately. Yeah. You would think. Like, I I honestly, it's it's beyond me why they didn't process it correctly. Why they didn't take fingerprints. And this might be part of the conspiracy. Right. Jim, Jim Reese, the guitarist for the Bobby Fuller Four, told an interviewer four days after Bobby died that three armed men came into his apartment looking for him. The next day, Reese and drummer Dalton Powell fled to El Paso, taking along a loaded pistol just in case. So things were happening that were really scary. Right. Also, Dalton's back. Okay. <laughs> Don't know where Dwayne went. All right. Again, like I said, uh, when it comes to Randy, it it is a fascinating book. It's really good. I I recommend it if you really want to like do, do have a deep dive into Bobby. Is go back and read "I Fought the Law" by Randy because it's written from his brother's perspective. The only thing is, occasionally it seems like the narrative gets switched up a little bit and it's kind of hard to follow. There was a co-write, right? Yeah, it was a co-write. And so it's, it's kind of hard to tell when it flips. So names kind of get switched around without explanation. Yeah. With scant evidence, no clear leads and so much time has gone by. It's doubtful that we'll ever really know what happened. And we're left to wonder what other great music Bobby Fuller might've brought into the world. Had he not been taken from it that July night, many decades ago. A coroner's report stated that he had apparently drunk gasoline, suggesting that it was suicide. Bob Keen called that ridiculous. To this day, however, no one's come up with a credible motive for Fuller's murder. 
And a recent episode of Unsolved Mysteries suggests that he died of a drug overdose at a beach party. I I love Unsolved Mysteries. I just I love Unsolved Mysteries so much that's what I fall asleep to at night. We know who's working on Fuller's biography calls that ludicrous about the beach party. How then did his body end up battered and in a car? And that's, that's where, what I said. Yeah. Let's break this down though in a couple different ways and I'll get to a, a little bit more information. Okay. Beach party. You're having a beach party. You have a head full of acid. Somebody dies. My first inclination, I don't know about you or about our listeners, mine would be to run. Right? I'm sorry. I That would be like my first thought was like, I got to get out of here. And I would go. Why take the time to locate his car? Beat him up. Well, if he was, if he had an accident, like he fell and like cut himself. Okay. And was unconscious. But then douse him in gasoline. Make sure he ingests some of it. Drive to his house in the middle of the day. Possibly to set the car on fire. Flee before it happens. Like, the time spent alone is crazy. It just doesn't add up. And honestly, like, there's... Nothing saying that 100% he definitely ingested it. Like, if somebody was dousing on him, it could have gotten into his stomach and into, you know, down his tract. Yeah. However they figure that out, you know. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm, I'm saying the beach story, for me, doesn't pan out. That doesn't check out at all. And, sorry. He was buried in Forest Lawn Cemetery in the Hollywood Hills on the 22nd of July. The cause of death, originally listed as suicide... A theory widely seemed unlikely, given his breakthrough success at the time, was actually later changed to accidental. Again, it doesn't check out either way, because he's all beaten up, and like somehow he would have had to get the car home. So none of that checks out. And then, I mean, even I'll, if it's accidental, I, like, I why accident- would you accidentally drink a bunch of gas? Well, the thing was, it was in a gas can. So you're not like reaching over and thinking that you're drinking an ice-cold Coca-Cola. Right. It's a gas can. There's nothing accidental about that. Well, I'm pretty sure you could smell it the second it gets even well, that's what they were close to your mouth. That's what they were saying, too, was like you would open up the door and it would just hit you like a wave. Like the right. smell of gasoline would just hit you. Yeah. Even if it was in a Coke can. Here's something, <laughs> here's something that I find insane. No criminal investigation was launched by the LAPD, which was in some turmoil at the time due to the sudden death of its chief of police just days earlier. I'm sorry, that is literally not an excuse. No. Do your job. I can understand, like, the grief factor, but push through, you know? Yeah. But rumors have persisted ever since Fuller was murdered that perhaps it was the mafia. Such subterfuge has been continued to be investigated by Bobby's brother, Randy, most notably in the book that I pulled this from, like... Most notably in the book that I actually pulled most of this information from. In 2015, he told NPR how the mystery had prevented him from finding closure over his own brother's death. It's just always eating you. It's always eating at you, he said. If you just knew what happened, you could get over it. But, you know, it's just always there. Yeah, I think that would be the hardest is that you have no idea who done it, why they did it. Yeah. What happened. That if it was an accident, if it was intentional, if it was 
if it was some bizarre self-inflicted thing and why, like, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Fuller's sad end may always overshadow a career with achievements in a much shorter time, but he will be warmly remembered, and not just for his signature hit, but for a new shade of blue used in the 1999 film Boys Don't Cry. Great film. Hilary Swank. Amazing. And Litter Dance, the Bobby Fuller Force single that immediately preceded I Fought the Law, a local Los Angeles hit that went on to be featured in the 2009 movie The Fantastic Mr. Fox, which I didn't see because Wes Anderson is strange to me. Okay. The words written by KRLA Beat soon after Fuller's death are as poignant today as they were then. He was only 23, a promising young singer from Texas who friends said that he just liked to be around people when he was found dead in his car parked in front of his home and no one knew why. Unfortunately, the botched investigation. So now we're going to talk about some of the theories, like launching into the theories, because we already had the beach theory. But I mean, we know that's that can't possibly be. It's way too flimsy. It is. Unfortunately, the botched investigation makes solid proof of anything difficult to find, and instead we only have the numerous rumors and personal accounts of people close to Fuller at the time of his death to go by. Many of, the closest, many of those closest to the singer don't believe the suicide story, and the official cause of death was changed three months after it was originally issued to accidental asphyxiation, which would indicate that he didn't kill himself on purpose. Why were his clothes soaked in gasoline? <laughs> Even in an enclosed space, it seems unlikely that enough fumes could be concentrated to soak a person's clothing, and none of Bobby Fuller's closest associates or loved ones indicated that he seemed depressed. Had someone intended to torch the car, but had to leave it in a hurry? That's what I said, was like, you know, right. like you started the thought, I ended it. Were the bruises on his body evidence that he had been beaten or killed or some other trauma, and then had been arranged in the car to make his death look like a suicide? See, that's more plausible to me, was that right. somebody... Tried to make it look like it. Yeah, tried to make it look like a suicide, but actually had beaten him to death. The car Fuller was found in had only been in the parking lot a short period of time, but the corpse was already experiencing rigor mortis, which could suggest that he had died earlier and somewhere else and then been moved to the parking lot. According to some sources, Fuller's producer Bob Keane was fond of gimmicky marketing tricks that didn't sit well with singers and was considering parting ways with Keen, like, and Bobby was considering parting ways with Keen, eager to embark on a solo career. His brother Randy believes that Bobby was killed by someone because he wanted to back out of a business deal, but there's no hard evidence proving such scenarios. And many other theories simply don't seem plausible, such as his murder at the hands of the Manson family, or that he accidentally died while high on LSD at a party thrown by rich people who hastily constructed the suicide scene to keep their involvement secret. Notorious LA gangsters and club owner Eddie Nash has been mentioned, as well as other crime figures who had their fingers in the mid-60s music industry. So the book that I took all this information from, and I've mentioned it a couple times, hang on, I'm just this, and I've mentioned it a couple times, is Miriam Lena's and Randall Fuller's I Fought the Law, The Life and Strange Death of Bobby Fuller, actually makes the case that a record industry leader named Morris, which is my grandfather's name, Morris Levy was the real mastermind behind Fuller's death. And even if he's not, Levy's reputation for rough tactics 
Artist exploitations and gangland connections definitely make him a compelling contender for an unsolved murder. But with Bobby Fuller's death still officially considered a suicide or accidental, there's not much interest in reopening an actual investigation into his death. So it's likely that we'll never know for sure what happened to end the life of the popular young musician. At least we'll always have his music. The two main theories seem to be, and I actually found this on like a, a Curia or like a Reddit thread. So oh, okay. So I, I couldn't source it to one particular person because it was just like a thread that was done. So right. the two main theories seem to be, one, he was accidentally killed by mob-connected guys due to jealousy over a woman. And two, he was killed because he had a $1 million insurance policy with his label Delphi Records, which was operating under a different name at that point. It had something to do with the murder because he wanted the money and a way to capitalize on the interest in Fuller's recordings that would have happened after his death. Keene had also profited when another artist on his label, Richie Valens, died in a plane crash with Buddy Holly. Curiouser and curiouser. Just another crazy conspiracy theory. Yeah, but when you watch The Unsolved Mystery, he actually appears in the episode. I think it's ep- season nine, episode 22. Don't quote me on that, but if you look up Bobby Fuller Unsolved Mysteries, it'll tell you what episode. So you can like go watch an abridged version of this. Where did you say this is out again? Is it on Prime or just YouTube? Yeah, it's on Prime. Cool. Unsolved Mysteries is on Prime. Cool. The other variation of theory, too, is that Keen didn't have anything to do with the murder directly, but he owed money to the mob who killed Fuller in uh, in order to force Keen to pay his debts. So that also makes... But if you, if you look at his appearance on Unsolved Mysteries, you know how you can watch something and just feel like something's off? Like you can watch an interview like Scott Peterson when he would appear in front of the news crew to talk about Lacey. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was kind of like the reverse of that because Bob Keene doesn't give off the vibe of someone who did anything wrong, if that makes any sense. Like, I didn't feel like he had anything to do with it. But that was just me. Like, I was just watching this, and it seems like he genuinely cared about Bobby. He didn't have that much information. So, I mean, it's just conjecture. Yeah. The author of L.A. Exposed dismisses theory, too, because there was no proof that Keene had mobbed up investors in his label, which... From what I understand, some labels did have mob connections. So, but there wasn't, it didn't seem like there was any evidence that Delphi had any mob connections. Okay. Also, I mean, when he initially took Bobby on, his place was kind of falling apart. And like Bob, Bobby went back home and picked up a bunch of his equipment and took it back to Bob's to like try to dress the place up because it's right. Just, so, I feel like if he was backed by the mob, the the studio would have been a little bit better. Yeah, he wouldn't have needed Bobby to get his own equipment out there. Yeah. (laughs) As another former Delphi artist said of Keen, which I couldn't actually find who said this, so it's it's conjecture from the part of the author. He may be a snake, but he's not a murderer. Again, backing Bob Keen, saying like, yeah, he did some really crummy things, but he wouldn't have killed somebody. And that was the feeling that I got when I was watching footage of Bob Kane that that he he wouldn't have killed somebody I mean it was Bobby likely was lured out of his house and murdered but no definitive killer or motive has ever been found however there have been recent developments in the case before becoming famous Bobby had had that infamous affair with the 15 year old girl in El Paso 
right. who bore him a son out of wedlock. The night that Bobby was murdered, the girl was giving birth to another child. Much later in life, the father of this girl confessed to his daughter that he had a hand in Bobby's murder, although he provided no details. After her father passed, she reported the story to Bobby's son, but later changed her story possibly to protect her father's reputation. This story seems to come closer to a possible answer than any other theories that I've investigated. Now who's investigated? The Reddit thread. Oh, okay. Like, I think this person that was on the Reddit thread actually, like, looked into various theories and stuff. Like, because you can actually go down, and I did, you can go down a rabbit hole with Bobby Fuller's death. It's just weird. Well, like, yeah. It's got all the elements of a good mystery. You've got a kid that's on his way to fame, possibly skeevy record producers. You've got possibly mobbed up people. You have a guy who likes to spread his seed. Like you have drugs, you have drugs, drug implications, drug, sex, rock and roll, and he's gotten his fair share of underage girls pregnant. So, I mean, this story has a lot of elements that just make it really, really interesting. And I, I, I wouldn't put it in the same category as the Black Dahlia, but it, it's that kind of caliber of mystery. Right. So the author claims, I think the author of the thread claims that theory one makes more sense because Bobby was drinking beers with one of his neighbors at 3 a.m. the last time he was seen alive. Fuller was probably lured out of his house with a phone call, possibly a booty call. Nobody knows for certain. And then I'm going to give you a website that you can look at, which is the website www.aaronpolar.com backslash straw. It's A-A-R-O-N-P-O-E-H-L-E-R.com backslash straw. Tends to go with theory two. However, on the site, one of Bobby Fuller's bandmates describes a scary incident it coincides with the in, the insurance policy theory. And this is from Jim Reese. Four days after Bobby's death, I, I gave like a little shakedown of it beforehand. Mm-hmm. But this is a little bit more information on that actual, the actual event. Four days after Bobby's death, three armed men showed up at the apartment of Bobby Fuller Four guitarist Jim Reese, which he shared with Dalton Powell two doors down from the building housing the Fuller apartment. Reese said, I got home at about midnight. Dalton was standing there with a gun in his hand. He told me about three men who came by looking for me. We had already decided to go back to El Paso the next day. Only difference was that I had a loaded pistol in my seat all the way back. Reese suspected that it had something to do with an, an insurance policy that was taken out on his life. I had that insurance policy canceled because I was, I was worth a lot more dead to certain people, and I was taking no chances. Randy recalls that there was a life insurance policy on Bobby for between 800000 and $1 million payable to the aforementioned investor in Delphi, who was rumored to have underworld connections. Dalton noticed that we worked off and on for some really ugly people. I think there were probably some people behind the scenes that considered us an investment. Maybe they saw that as their $1 million investment about to fly out the window and they wanted to make sure they got some of it. Puller's website also seems to contradict the theory that a booty call was used to lure Fuller out of his home because he said that Fuller left his house wearing casual clothing instead of trying to freshen up for a party or for a date. I mean, we do forget that this is the 60s. And, you know, if someone makes the joke now, oh, I've got to do my hair, it's literally a blow-off. But back in the day... Right. It actually meant something. Like in the 60s, they would just get freshened up and look nice and have a nice pair of slacks on, a, a nice ironed crisp shirt. They would look good going out, especially somebody of Bobby's caliber, like, you know, wanting to impress someone. Based on the book, Ellie exposed the three biggest suspects 
with a motive and the means to kill off Bobby Fuller were Bob Keane, the owner of Delphi Records, Dominic Lucci, the mobbed-up owner of PJ's Nightclub in L.A., and Eddie Nash, another mobbed-up owner of PJ's Nightclub in L.A. Eddie Nash is, of course, an interesting, shady character because in the 1970s, he was associated with four homicides called the Wonderland Murders that were linked to some drug deals gone wrong. Porn star Long John Holmes may have made the murders possible by deliberately leaving a door unlocked in a drug dealer's house. These events later inspired the scene in the movie Boogie Nights where Dirk Diggler and his shady new friends try to rob a drug dealer. That is one of the most unsettling scenes in cinematic history, in my opinion. One of the best movies. It is probably... I'm only, like, I, I had it on, I would but I that, don't think I paid that close attention. I would put that movie in, like, my top 15 because it's got one of the most amazing arcs in a film I've ever seen. So this is backing up the mob claim. On December 1st, 1967, Jimmy Rogers suffered traumatic hand injuries after the car he was driving was stopped by an off-duty police officer near the San Diego freeway in Los Angeles. He had fractured his skull and required several surgeries. Initial reports in the newspapers attribute his injuries to a severe beating with a blunt instrument by an unknown assailant. Rogers had no specific memory of how he had been injured, remembering that he had only seen blindingly bright lights from a car pulling up behind him. A few days later, the police department stated that an off-duty LAPD officer named Michael Duffy, later identified in the press as Richard Duffy, had stopped him for erratic driving and that Rogers had stumbled, fallen, and hit his head. According to police version, Duffy then called for assistance from other officers and the three of them put an unconscious Rogers into his car and left the scene. That's a little weird, isn't it? That's a little suspect. This account was supported by the treating physicians who had first blamed the skull fracture on a beating. The latter part of December, they concluded that Rogers had in fact fallen and caused his own injuries. That following month, Rogers filed a $11 million lawsuit against the city of Los Angeles, claiming that the three officers had beaten him. The police and the L.A. County District's attorney rejected these claims, although the three officers were given two-week suspensions for imp improper procedures in handling the case, particularly they leaving an injured Rogers alone in his car. He was later found by a worried friend. The three officers and the L.A. Fire and Protective League filed a $13 million slander suit against Rogers for his public statement accusing them of brutality. Neither suit came to trial. The police slander suit was dropped, and in 1973, Rogers elected to accept a $200,000 settlement from the Los Angeles City Council, which voted to give him the money rather than to occur costs and risk a further court action. Rogers and his supporters still believe that one or more police officers beat him, although observers find the evidence inconclusive. In his 2010 biography, Me, the Mob, and Music singer Tommy James wrote that Morris Levy, the mafia-connected head of Roulette Records, had actually arranged the attack. All of Rogers' most successful singles had been released by Roulette. I think with all of that, that theory would probably... That wins my vote of theories for the night. That it was the mob that did it? Yeah, the mob in well, conjunction with the police, especially for as negligent as they were with the crime scene. It's like you wanted all that evidence to get messed up. Well, if you think about it from the mob angle and Morris Levy angle, 
that there was an insurance policy out on Bobby and that the investigation was botched, which is almost improbable that that the pictures weren't taken, that fingerprints weren't taken, evidence was thrown away, people were just allowed to trample through the crime scene, like willy-nilly that no tape went up or anything. The idea that maybe the police were bought by the mob kind of makes sense. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this podcast feels dangerous. But, I mean, of all of the, you know, Randall put forth that that theory that Morris Levy was the one that did it, like was the one that was the mastermind behind it. And for me, that seems to be the one that makes the most sense. Yeah. And so, I mean, we will never know what happened to to Bobby Fuller. But again, I'm going to go with his brother on this. Yep. I'm going to, I'm going to make that vote as well. Honestly, like that makes the most sense, especially with having another similar story from somebody that survived it to tell it it seems the most probable and like lines up the best with the, with what how the scene was found yeah and he was also involved in the music industry with ties to this guy and i mean it, there's so much to unpack with this would bobby fuller have become a bigger star was the trend that his music was producing on a downturn and they thought okay we're going to start losing money on this, so just kill him and get the money for it. You know, there's just, there's so much to unpack, and it's just so weird. And, and I I don't know where I stand exactly, but I'm I'm definitely going to say, like, I, I agree with Randy. Yep. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube that you can look up uh, about his death, and there's even more theories about what happened to him. But the the things that make it interesting are the fact that the car wasn't there in the morning and when it showed back up, rigor had already set in. And so the, the thing with rigor mortis is that it can actually set in within a few hours of death and typically lasts like 12 hours after it sets in. And there are wide variations on what makes rigor set in and how it's loosened because it's not a permanent thing. Right. And... So it's just that rigidness of the body that sets in. So it, his body was stiff. And so it takes hours for that to set in. So it wasn't like he drove the car up, drank gasoline, punched himself in the face a bunch of times, and then, you know, covered himself in gasoline. I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not plausible. Sorry. No. That needs to I'm be. I'm not buying that at all. No. I don't buy that it was a suicide and I don't buy that it was accidental. I definitely think that this was something that was planned and possibly even botched in in some way, shape, or form. But also think about the corruption of cops, like with the mob. Like right. the sixties were a big time for the mafia, and they they had their they were keeping people's pockets lined, especially the cops. Mm-hmm. And I'm of course I'm not saying that all cops are bad, and this is kind of irrefutable was that there were cops that were being bought off by the mafia to keep them out of things so i mean like you slip the lead inspector you know two grand and all of a sudden the gas can gets tossed out i'm just yep i'm just spitballing here but so that's the 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 wrap-up of the bobby fuller story i really do suggest that you guys go pick up the book i fought the law 
I am in no way affiliated with the book, of course, but I'm saying if you want to do more of a deep dive on Bobby Fuller, that's one of the best resources to pick up. And uh, you can really fall down a rabbit hole with yeah. this on YouTube. Like there are a bunch of stories, bunch of interviews, and the Unsolved Mysteries is really good. So check that out. But there's there's so much stuff about Bobby Fuller that you can do more of a deep dive into. And I know that we've taken up like two hours to talk to him. And still we haven't even like scratched the surface of a lot of things. So please go and check that stuff out because it's it's really interesting. And it's it's constantly showing up on, you know, mysterious death lists and like the worst crimes of, of rock and roll and things like that. So it's definitely an interesting subject, and I'm really glad that I, I went into it because I did fall down a hole for days. <laughs> so that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to the second part of Bobby Fuller. Next week, we're going to return with Tracy's very first two-part episode. And Tracy, I'm so excited about your subject. Who are you doing? The man in black, baby. Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash. I'm so beyond excited about this episode you have no idea i'm so excited so join us next week when tracy starts part one of her two-part episode on johnny cash and then after that i'll be doing sam cook which is kind of another unsolved mystery to an extent a little bit because nobody knows everything um, also, we still have a couple spots left on our Patreon. If you want to donate to either level, no matter what, we're going to love you with anything you give. We do have a Patreon. Yeah. And you can find us at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us at Twitter at rock and roll LT. Our Facebook is rock and roll heaven pod. Our Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT. Still not saying our website. And you can email us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. And I did get a message on Facebook the other day. And just to reiterate, yeah, we did take down the Spotify playlist of the artist because between doing my research and recording and editing this while having my full-time job and needing the space on my phone, uh, we did end up taking them down. But if there's enough of an interest, I might start doing them again with the new artists that we have. So guys, again, thank you for checking out this episode. We really, really appreciate it. Keep rocking in the free world. Tracy. Yes. I'll see you in a couple hours. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> see you in the morning. See you in the morning. Bye. Bye. We're done. Not quite. Oh, you're right. Love.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 